We come to a very familiar passage in the gospel, the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke chapter 9. And I think the temptation, the potential problem when we come to something that is so familiar is that familiarity breeds contempt. And we look at this as if uh, we already know what is there. We don't need to learn anything here. We see what it is and we don't put much effort into looking. And I should say that preachers fall into that as much as people do. It is a common problem. And so we're in great need of God's help this morning to see what we ought to see, that we would not neglect it, that we would not fall away from the good things that he provides for us this day. Well, what is there for us to see? What is it that we should be looking for? Well, with all of Scripture, what, what else is there? We are looking at the person and the work of Christ. That is what all of Scripture is about, the person and the work of Christ, who he is, what he did, and how that relates to us. What else is there? And the theme of this passage is rather clear, that Jesus feeds the people. Now, that's most obvious in this just miraculous distribution of food it's uh, incidentally not so much a, uh, a miracle as we think of it, a miracle in which he creates a storehouse out of nowhere, food of which then the disciples distribute. Actually, the miracle is in the distribution of the food as the disciples distribute it. It's seen most clearly there, but it's also seen in his teaching of them the word of God, which actually comes first, which is the main thing, which is the point, the reason why they're there. And the rest of it is in some way incidental to that. And I want us to see that this was, preceded, this was preceded by the people's choice to put themselves in a place to be near Jesus. That was a crucial thing. The reason why they needed to be fed was because they were in the wilderness. And the reason why they are in the wilderness is because they wanted to see and to hear the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a good idea. That was a good decision. There's no better choice to be made. Now that, that decision comes with various consequences. And we have to see who those consequences fall upon. Is it the people? Are they going to have to shift for themselves? Or does someone else take upon himself those kind of consequences? It's important for us to see that. Jesus feeds the people, but first the people decide to go see him, to be in the place where he is. And as we're going to see, the disciples are not as clear on this point as they should have been. Those people had made a good decision. And they have what I would call a bad idea in sending them away. But the point is that Jesus is able to do this great work of feeding us. No matter what the, the situation may be. And, and this is the title, this is the point of our sermon. Jesus feeds the people. And I want us to see that. And with these four points. First, the people's good idea Secondly, Jesus feeds them the word. Third, the disciples' bad idea. And fourth, Jesus feeds them bread. Well, first, the, the people's good idea. As it says in verse 10, and the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them aside, uh, took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him. Now, he went to this deserted place. This is right on the heels, as you probably remember from the previous chapter or previous time, um, uh, the previous section of the sending out of the twelve. They go out and they do their work of preaching and healing, and now they return, and Jesus is taking them aside wisely. 
to some deserted private place to debrief them, to hear these things. Uh, we, we suspect there was great enthusiasm as they were telling these things, and Jesus had things to, to teach them, and he wisely goes to this deserted place to debrief them. Now, somehow the, the people found out. They found out where he was, and they decide to go follow him. And, and again, this is a reminder, not that we can't ever do a better job of publicity. We should certainly make those roads go, leading to the place of refuge as, as clear and as good as possible. We should make the signs. We should make the website and all the rest of those things very good and clear. But in the end of the day, people make a decision whether they want to see Jesus or not. And you can't keep them away if they want to see him. They're going to come find where he's to be found. They're going to travel that distance. They're going to find their way if they really want to see him. Well, they found out about it. They decide to go there. And they, they simply, and it looks like they just go as they were. And some people would say, you know, this, um, hey, is this not a bit rude? You know, Jesus had taken them specifically. He had a good reason to go privately to speak to his people. Is not a bit it rude to intrude like this? And I guess by contemporary British standards of privacy, I guess so. It was. But I also suspect that by contemporary British standards of privacy, many people have gone to hell. They've been prevented from doing what was necessary to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And it has kept them away from Christ. Listen to the way that Jesus himself describes his kingdom in Matthew 11. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. It doesn't say the polite take it in accordance with all the established rules of privacy. They, keep, they, they take it, you see, in, and we're not talking about physical violence, of course. They're talking about doing whatever it takes to take this, this jewel, this crown, this pearl of great price. You do whatever it takes to get into the, the kingdom of heaven. It does not matter. And these people, they did that. They, they did what they, did, they needed to do in order to see Jesus. It was a good idea. It was a good decision. And Jesus is not going to rebuke them. The consequences, what about that? Had they prepared perfectly for this? Had they set aside everything that they needed for this journey, for this time in the wilderness? Well, no, I don't think so. And, you know, they... Could have prepared more, I suppose. But, you know, the thing is, we have just learned the lesson that Jesus taught his disciples, the very same one when he sent them out in to do their work, out to do their preaching. When he sends out the twelve, he doesn't send them with provision. He specifically tells them, don't bring provision. Don't bring a bag. Don't bring a sword. Don't bring a staff. Don't bring anything. Just go. In order why? To teach them the lesson that he can provide for them no matter what. And keep that in mind, by the way, when we, when we go soon enough to uh, consider what the disciples come up with, their bad idea, they seem to have already forgotten that. Jesus has the resources to take care of them. All they needed to do was to follow, and Jesus would worry about the consequences. Precisely the point he's going to make soon enough. He's already made this point. In the earlier part of this chapter, he's going to make this, the point in the very next part of this chapter in Luke 9.23. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. 
if you want to preserve your situation, if you care about having things nice and tidy and taken care of in a sense of you have provision long in the future, just like that foolish farmer building his, his giant barns and so forth, storing up for the future. If you want to do that, you get what you want, but you don't get Jesus. You don't get the kingdom of heaven. In fact, you lose it all soon enough. You cannot do that and follow Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. The consequences be what they, they may. I'm not asking you to care about them. Sometimes I think he even puts a situation in which apparently it means disaster to follow him. It might look like that. Because he wants you to prize this kingdom above all else. It is not something that falls into your lap. It is not right for us to think of it that way. Now these people have made that decision. They have just done it. They have just walked as they were to go see Jesus. Apparently all with their families and all the rest of it. They have hazarded their their lives in order to come do this to some extent. And they are not going to be penalized for it. Okay, Jesus is not going to rebuke them. We're going to see that again, by the way, in the next chapter. It, it, I, you begin to think that there's a point to be made in this middle section of Luke about that. Luke 10, 39. This is talking about, you know, uh, Mar- Mary and Martha. And uh, Martha had a sister called Mary who, uh, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. That's the good part. It won't be taken away from her. And it won't be taken away from these people. They likewise have chosen the good part to go see Jesus. Dropping their ordinary life. Dropping their ordinary situation in order to go do that. And it won't be taken away from them. We have to keep that in mind as we consider what happens. Well, our second point after this, in light of this very good decision that the people made, secondly, Jesus feeds them the word. It says in verse 11, And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. And again, if we haven't already seen it, he received them. That's what Jesus did. He received them. And some translations you'd have, we receive them gladly. This is not a begrudging, you're interrupting here. He received them because that's what... And again, they were interrupting a private meeting. Jesus welcomed them. And I want us to know that this was not unusual. When people wanted to come see him, they they saw him. Uh, If they demanded to see a sign, did that work? No, no. You know that what it said in Matthew 12, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that's all that they don't get a sign. But that's different. And on some rare occasions, you know, like in the case of the Canaanite woman, Jesus challenges someone to make a point. He pushes them just a little bit along these lines. But I don't know of a single instance in which a sinner came to him with a genuine desire to see and hear him and was just turned away. That's not what Jesus came to do. This is a faithful and worthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
First Timothy 1.15. That's what he came to do. He came to save sinners. He came to speak to them. He came to give them the word of life. And, and wherever they were and whatever they came to him, he had time to speak to them. He received them. And he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Again, this being in, key, in keeping with Jesus' mission that we heard back in Luke 4.43. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. What a constraint. If anyone was ever free, it would seem to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He was no slave. He was the creator of all things and he was the Lord of all things. And yet he, he says, I must do this. And he says, for this reason, I have been sent. He was sent in this world. Now we know, of course, that ultimately he was sent to be the, the Lamb of God. He was sent to lay down his life, to die for the sins of his people. That was his great purpose. But that great work, of course, is not applied unless the kingdom, the knowledge of it, the gospel of that is preached. He accomplished salvation on the cross, but it is applied to us through the word of God. And for that reason, he came to speak. And he still speaks today. Yes, he speaks through his, his people. But funny enough, even as we're going about to see in his, the distribution, the way that this provision was given to the people, that doesn't really change anything. That doesn't make a slightest bit of difference. He still speaks to us. He is still preaching that kingdom. Even right now, he is preaching that kingdom. Now, I, I would also say, incidentally, um, a little lesson that we might learn from this as he was preaching the kingdom to them. He, wasn't, he didn't spend all that much time talking about football. He didn't spend all that much time talking about some other incidental things. And some of these things, there's nothing inherently sinful about them at all. The question is priority. The question is what is more important? And, you know, every time we see Jesus, he's always talking about the kingdom. He always finds something of, of spiritual use to speak to the people. Time is short. This, this life is short. And it is worth speaking to people about things of eternal importance. And we need to learn that lesson. There's, there's no sin in speaking of, of ordinary matters. And sometimes it is necessary and right for us to do it. But... There should always be a push. There should always be some urgency. There should always be a desire to impart something of grace to one another. You do that to me too, please. And we, we need to hear these eternal things. And Jesus knew how to do that. Well, along these lines also in this, this point that Jesus feeds them the word, it should be a reminder to us also what a privilege it is to know about the, the kingdom of God. Not so long ago, we heard the words in Luke 8, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see and hear and they may not understand. I don't know exactly what they heard that day, these people who earnestly came and went all that way into the wilderness, just as they were, this large company of people wanting to see Jesus. But they had displayed greater than ordinary desire, and I wonder whether they received a little bit more for it. I wonder if they came and they, they got what they came for. That Jesus opened to them the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Those kind of things that angels desired to look into. Those things that were hidden from the foundation of the world. Explained and opened. It is a great privilege. And I am thankful for this congregation, this people. That on the whole we, 
we have a sense of that enormous privilege of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But it's something that we can never lose. It's something that cannot be diminished, that we should come every time in anticipation of receiving of these things. It is a privilege. It is not something to be taken lightly. It is not something to be taken for granted. Well, what is the kingdom? I spoke to them about the kingdom of God. The question is, what is the kingdom? And I have to say that there is a lot of confusion in our day about what the, the kingdom of God is. And I think the time has come for us to make that a little bit clearer. And my reading and my understanding of the word of God and in Reformed Orthodoxy, there are actually a total of three kingdoms, two of which are present and one of which is to come. There is, first of all, the kingdom of power. And this is important. This is where the confusion sometimes comes in as to, doesn't Jesus, it doesn't have authority over all things? Well, he does. That's his kingdom of, of power. Jesus does have authority over all things. He is God, and he wouldn't be God if there's any part of anything. Any, as somebody says, if there was a, a particle anywhere in this universe that was on its own and could do what it wanted and was not under the authority of Jesus Christ, then he wouldn't be God. But he is God. He does have authority over all things. And if anything happens, any, any action, anything whatsoever happens anywhere in the world at any time, we know it is because he has decreed in his perfect sovereignty that it would happen. And that, insert, that of course, includes all the affairs of man. It includes the sparrow. It includes the flowers. But it includes, of course, the affairs of mankind. Whatever sphere that they might happen. Whatever it might be. But the, the thing about the kingdom of power, this is a crucial distinction, is that in those things that Christ is not actually being recognized as king. He's doing them. He's wielding that power despite themselves. But they're not recognizing him as king. They say, we, will, we don't want this man to reign over us. And In fact, the people of this world, although they cannot escape the ultimate authority of God, and although they cannot escape that power, they choose another one to rule over them. They don't choose Christ, they choose Satan, who is the prince of this world. And his lies, his word, they follow, they listen to. Again, in the end, they're ultimately under his control, and even despite themselves and unwittingly, they do as decreed. Yet they, in their choice and their volition, they listen to another shepherd, a false shepherd, to Satan. And those who are only in that kingdom, only under the, the, the bare power and authority of, of Christ, they will not be saved. That's the kingdom of power. There's no exception to it. It's, it's all encompassing. But when we hear the kingdom being spoken about in the Gospels, when he's talking about preaching the kingdom, he's not talking about that kingdom. Okay, I just want to say in what, what sense it's true that he has authority over all things. But he, generally speaking, with almost no exception, he is not talking about that kingdom. He's talking about a different one. And it's called the kingdom of grace. The kingdom of grace. Kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of grace. That's, that's what it, these things are basically synonymous in the Gospels. John 18.36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Okay, do you understand? So he's not denying that he has power over all things. In fact, he, go, he, tells, this, he tells this ruler that you would have no power at all unless it were given to you from on high. And who's that? My father. My father and I are one. Of course, he has power 
over all things. But what he says is the kingdom, the thing that I'm particularly concerned of, the thing that I'm here to build, that's not that kind of kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. Now. Not at the moment. It is the kingdom that is being built up through the proclamation of the gospel. When people come to him in faith. That's the crucial difference. Those people out there in the kingdom of power, yes, they're the ones that listen to Satan. They don't listen to Christ. They, don't, they haven't bowed the knee to him. But in the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of heaven, they have bowed the knee. We have put our faith in him. We gladly follow him, sometimes imperfectly, but our great desire is to follow him wherever he goes. And so our confession says, 25.2, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. And here they don't even bother, don't necessarily even say anything else. It's the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ because that's what is generally spoken of. That's the kingdom he's talking about. Those who put their faith in Christ. And all that to be, is really important because how are you going to build that? If you thought you could add to the kingdom of power, then you'd try to go out and do things, power type things. Money things and culture things and politic kind of things. But if you know that the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of grace can only be increased by what? By people coming into that kingdom by faith then you know the only way of building that kingdom, the only way the church fulfills its mission is by the word of God, is by the, the, the means of grace by which people are added to that kingdom. It's important for us to understand that distinction. One last thing, I did mention that there's three. Jesus said, now, my kingdom is not of this world now, but someday it will be because that's the kingdom of glory. There's a kingdom of power, the kingdom of grace, and the kingdom of glory. And that's summarized in the shorter catechism, 102, this section of our catechism that talks about the Lord's Prayer. And the question is, what do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition, which is, thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom, by the way, which I mentioned, although the kingdom of power is all extant, those outside the kingdom of grace are by default in the kingdom of Satan, that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened because he is coming in glory and he's coming to bring in the everlasting kingdom the new heavens and the new earth and there won't be any exception to that God's will will be done on earth when we pray that God's will would be done it is not by somehow further extending his power and authority over this earth in that basic way it's already complete it's done by the expansion of his kingdom of grace as people are added to it. And ultimately, by his soon ushering in that everlasting kingdom. He spoke to them about this. He fed them the word of God. He explained to them the kingdom of heaven. And one more thing that we should not neglect. He healed those who were in need of healing. Now, we're going to speak in just a moment of these of three different kind of purposes for Jesus' miracles they were signs of who he was. They were done out of practical compassion. And they were also a picture, a type of what he did for them. 
But we don't neglect that when these people come to them in their great need and he has in his hands, because he's the son of God, the ability to heal them, that he does that. He is a good shepherd. So the, the people make a very good decision by coming out to see him. And, and Jesus responds by feeding them with the word of God. Thirdly, though, the disciples have a bad idea. Verse 12, when the day began to wear away, the twelve came to him and said, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place here. Now that might seem to be wisdom. That might seem to be a good idea. You know, by man's wisdom, it was a deserted place. They needed food. But what was the problem in their logic? What were they missing? What were they missing before? And we were just talking about the, the storm, right? They were in a storm. And, you know, there's a problem. There's a problem. The water, the, the storm is great. They're getting swamped. And they need help. But what is their problem? They're forgetting they're in the boat with Jesus. That Jesus is the source of all safety and all comfort and all power. He's right there. There's no safer place to be. They weren't going to drown if they were with him. Okay, now by extension... Here we are, we're in a deserted place, there's no food around, that's true. There's a big problem, they need food, but what are they forgetting? That Jesus is the source of all goodness, and of power, and of sustenance, and of life itself, and therefore, you don't send them away from there to go get what they need. Do you see? It sounded like a good idea, but when you really think about it, it wasn't. You don't send people away from Jesus in order to get what they need. As if Christ were not sufficient. Because Christ is all sufficient. There is nothing that he cannot do for us. And if they have come to hear him, to be with him, all he had ever said to them is follow me. And people would come up with their lame excuses. No, no, I've got to do this. Got to take care of a house. Got to take care of a field. Got to take care of an ox. Lame excuses. And Jesus says... Fine, you don't get me then. You make your choice. Each and every time, he says, you just follow me. You don't worry about those things. Don't worry about those things. You just follow me. And you think he's now going to say, yeah, you're right. Just send them away into the random countryside. They don't even have much of a plan there. They just say, go and maybe they can find provisions. That's the word. And, and they can find these things somehow. We don't have a good idea. We're not going to give them money. We don't know some place that they could go, but they could just go find these things. Brothers and sisters, as we interact with the people outside, we never send them away. We find some way by which they might see Christ. We find some way by which we might give them help and hope. Well, Jesus tests them, rightly. He puts this logic to the test. In a couple of different senses. In verse 13 he says to them. You give them something to eat. Okay, Puts the onus back on them. You give them something. Of course it's designed to show them the bankruptcy of their own situation. The fact that they don't have the resources to do that. But you know the fact is when, when you say. You know so in one sense by saying you give them something to, to eat. Of course they just said well we can't do that. But in another sense, they could. Because soon enough, they were going to do precisely that. And they would have to. 
They would have to because Jesus' whole plan for the building of his kingdom of grace on this earth was predicated, absolutely demanded that they would have the wherewithal to feed the people. They would have to do that. Soon enough, you know, and they were going to see that. It was going to be by their hand that Jesus would feed his people. And one day, of course, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, feed my sheep. And, and that better work. Jesus had better have the power to relay to them, to, to hand to them in order that you might receive. Otherwise, you're all, you're all doomed. If Jesus can't make that work, if he can't make his disciples the instruments by which you receive everlasting life, then you're done for. But thankfully, Jesus has that power and he can say to them, you feed them. He has that authority to tell them to do it, and he has the power to make it good, and it worked. Jesus has that power. So even though the disciples had a bad idea, Jesus makes it good. Fourthly, Jesus feeds them bread. Verse 14, then he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50, and they did so and made them all sit down And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up into heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to disciples to set before the multitude. And we're reminded again of Jesus giving glory to the the Father. That was his great point in all the work that he did. He gave glory to the Father. And we know that that the Father always heard him no matter what, but I think he made a particular point in this. And we know that he received all that he asked. Now, what do we think about this? Well, I mentioned that there's kind of three reasons for Jesus' miracles. They, I mentioned one of them, which was just a provision born out of compassion, born out of his providential care. He is taking care of his own people. They had left everything to go hear him, and he wasn't going to let them starve. That's one part of it. I think the greatest and most important part of every one of his miracles is to demonstrate who he was, to validate his divinity. And, and John is, uh, you know, in John, uh, the Lord holds people's noses to that. He doesn't let you escape what he has done. In John ten twenty five, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, that's the miracles, they bear witness of me. That's what they do. That's their point. That's the main thing. If I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And when I say that we shouldn't go down the road of rationalist apologetics in this kind of modern compromised way of of interacting world, I don't mean to say that Jesus did not prove who he was. He did. He did completely and objectively, and there's no, there's no gain saying that. It is only because people don't want to hear it that they refuse that. He demonstrated who he was through all of his miracles, and this was one of them. This was one of them, a great one. And there's no excuse for not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ because he demonstrated that on that day, and you're hearing about it, and it's true. But it was also a type, an illustration of who Jesus is and what he does. Again, that's what we're all trying to find out about, right? Who is Jesus, the person of Jesus, and his work? What has he done and how that relates to us? And and that's what this is a type of. That's a picture of it. You know, 
as Jesus explains all this, this feeding of the 5,000 and elsewhere in John chapter 6, he explains what he's trying to say. What does it mean when, when Jesus is able to have the power so that his disciples go and distribute this bread and every time they distribute, more appears, more appears, and more fish appears. He gives them this food and it just keeps coming, it just keeps coming. What is he pointing on? And all these people are feeding them. In fact, what it says is they all ate in verse, verse 17. They, so they all ate and were filled. It wasn't that they, they had a little bit. It wasn't that they barely had enough. It was that they were filled. They had all that they needed. He came that they might have life and have it more abundantly, not be on life support. And what is he trying to say by all that? He says, I am the bread of life. That's who he is. Jesus says, you want to know about me? I want, I'll tell you. I am the bread of life. Yes, he's created this physical bread by which we live, by which we continue to have life, this physical food. And by that we know it is all inclusive because we know that the bread that he gave also included the fish. So it's included of all material food of which if we do not have, we soon wither, we soon become weak and we die. We need it to live. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Do you believe that? It's a question he had for, you, for them back then, and it's a question I have for you now. Do you believe that? That Jesus is the bread of life. Well, it was a type, an illustration, that those who receive him, those who come to hear him, those who receive his words and, and receive of his hand, of his good things, they have eternal life and they'll not perish. That's the point. We feed on him in faith. Going on also in John 6, verse 35, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. There again, pointing to the fact he wasn't going to send them away. He was demonstrating that the ones who come to him, he's, he's going to receive, and he's no, no means going to cast them out. It's pointing back, you know, the whole situation of manna. How long did they have manna? It wasn't just a, a, a single day event in the Old Testament, but throughout their desert wanderings until they finally come into the promised land, they received day by day manna from heaven. Now, if that doesn't teach us, I don't know what will. It teaches us that basic idea that he is able, even in the wilderness, because that's where they were right here in Luke, and also back then, they were in the wilderness, a place where there was no food, and there's a lot of people. 5,000 men, plus all the women and children here in Luke. There's a lot more than that in the Old Testament. Well over a million people, probably closer to two. And God is able to provide them. How? Because he simply makes bread to appear out of nowhere on the ground. It's called manna. God is able to feed them. But all that, even all that, it was just to point to the greater thing that was to come. This provision that God would have for them. The provision that God would give for them in Christ who is the bread of life. That is the greater thing to which the miracle of manna that went on for 40 years. And the miracle there in in Luke chapter 9 in our passage is all pointing to that. That God in his great power and grace gives us the bread of life which came down from heaven. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, I shall give as my flesh. 
which I shall give for the life of the world. His body was broken on the cross, and those who receive of it in faith will live. It's as simple as that. And he will feed us, as I said. He tells Peter in John 21, 17, the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And what's the word that Jesus has? This almost parting word, this great commandment, which he's now said three times. What does he care about? What is his concern? Where is his priority? He says, feed my sheep. And if Jesus' emphasis, if Jesus' focus is so great on that, Brothers and sisters, we know we've come to the right place. We know that we've come to Christ, the one whose great concern is to feed you, yes, sheep, you of little faith. He will feed you. And, of course, there are the fragments. These fragments that they've, they picked up in the, the baskets, just a proof, a demonstration that this is not cutting that little, that, that these loaves and these fishes and ever more infinitesimal little pieces until they make these 5,000 bits of it or how many ever, probably more like 10 or 12,000 of them. It was that they had, they returned, they got more back in the leftovers than they ever did in, in the beginning. And John six twelve comments, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. He's not wasteful. Nothing's going to be lost in his kingdom. We can be certain that there is no sacrifice, there is no thing done whatsoever in any way that of which is going to be lost. Well, we have to move quickly on to our applications. And uh, my first application is rather simple. It is this. Make a decision to see Jesus. That's what the people did in the first place. That's what everything else that came of it, that, that's where it began. They made that decision to see Jesus. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Do you want to see him? Then make that decision to do it. And the question is, where is Jesus to be found? Where is he? He's not here. He's risen. He's on the, the right hand of God. But what has he done? He sent out his disciples And now he speaks through the church. And the answer to the question, where is Jesus to be found? The answer is in faithful churches that preach the whole counsel of God. That's where he is to be found. And nowhere else. Those places, nowhere else. Pretty simple then. So what is on you? If you want to see Jesus, what then is the the burden that is placed upon you? Find a place where the whole counsel of God is preached. Okay? And now, if you, if you don't know that yet, if you haven't had enough information, some of you are visiting here today for the first time. You don't have, maybe you don't have enough information to go on. But when you have that information, it's sufficient to decide that, yes, here Jesus is to be found. Here is where the whole counsel of God is being preached. Then I, my counsel to you is to commit, to make a decision to be here. Make that commitment to the church, to the place where Jesus is to be found. Now maybe there are consequences. Maybe there are risks. Maybe you're, there are, are, there's a price to be paid in all that. But, but Jesus says, I, don't worry about that. I'll, I'll take care of that. You follow me. 
You come hear me, and you'll be blessed, and your family will be blessed. Remember, they brought their little ones along with them. They will be blessed. You just come be with me. And again, my counsel to you is commit, decide, join. If this is where Jesus is to be found, this is where you need to be. And second, of course, I say, believe the gospel. Believe it. Jesus is the source of life. You must come to him to live. You are in a far worse situation than people who just simply haven't eaten all day and are are feeling a little bit weak. Or even those who have not eaten all week and are not able to do anything at all. You see, apart from Jesus, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. That's what it says. It's hard for us to see that sometimes because it seems that we're alive. But look, we, all we have to do, the wonderful thing about in God's people is we have somebody of every age. We may have the brand new little children that they don't seem very dead. But as we continue on, the signs of decay become more evident. Our hair turns gray. And the cells in our body begin to die. And we get slower and we have less energy and disease continues to do its work and we're reminded that death is at work in us we are dead naturally in our sins and trespasses despite all appearances we are born that way and if you want to live you have got to eat jesus you have got to you've got to receive from him the word of god and be saved Put your trust in his broken body and shed blood. And in particular, the particular application of this is you can't wait for the perfect circumstances to do that. Heaven is not something you just acquire in a moment of, of convenience and ease, just waiting for it to fall in your lap, as I said. In that rare and fleeting moment when you catch a glimpse of Jesus Christ, when you just happen to hear his voice calling you, that's the moment that you follow him. You might not hear it again. That's the moment that you sell all to go after him. And the consequences, well, better they than you. So you know that as a sinner, you stand in continual risk of falling into hell forever. The consequences, better they than you. John 12, 36 is, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Believe in the gospel. And finally, I would say this, be encouraged in your work. Because the funny thing is, we have a great illustration of the way God enables us to do the things that we're called to do in this world. Because what is in our hand at any moment is not going to look like much. It didn't look like much to the disciples. They almost ridiculed it. You really expect us to be able to feed them with these, these five loaves and two fishes. It's impossible. Well, again, he hasn't given us much. It isn't much. That's actually reality. It doesn't look like much because it's not. It's not enough to do what God has called us to do. He tells us, you feed them. And we're tempted to look at what our, our hands and say, I can't do it. 
He calls us to do all the rest of the things that he calls us to do. And there are lots of things. All the vocations that are represented here. Moms. He calls you to do something. And you say, I don't have the resources to pull this off. And he says, it's designed to be that way. I know that. You don't have them in your hands, but I will give to them. As you serve, as you are obedient, I will give to you what is necessary to pull it off. He has that power. He has infinite resources at his hands, and he can do it. No, you can't, but he does. And if you're in Christ, then you have the resources to do all that he calls you to do. And there's no exception. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, you have had mercy upon us. You have met with us. We have come, some of us, with much violence against all of our flesh, against all of our desire to have an an easy day. And Lord, not to be challenged, but Lord, you have brought us here and met with us in this wilderness place, and we have heard your word. The kingdoms, the, the mysteries of the kingdom have been made known to us. And how we pray, Lord, that Satan will not steal away this word, but, Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit would be great upon us, that we'd receive these things as truth, and we'd believe them, and we'd act upon them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.